Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer, and broadcaster. And I'm a podcaster who interviewed roughly 1,400 celebrities. Can you imagine how arduous that was? All those egos, including my own. Either way, the full list of my interviews, including those with Richard Harris, upon which the 2022 movie The Ghost of Richard Harris was based, is available on my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com. But over the past three months, the tables have been turned on me. I became the interviewee who was interviewed often on radio in my homeland of Ireland and in the UK about my latest book, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven, which was published to coincide with the movie. The best of these interviewers exhibited two key traits that I think make a great interviewer, namely an empathetic soul and an ability to listen, truly listen. Something that sadly, I think, is too often missing in society. Some of those interviewers even got me asking questions about Irish actor and singer and poet and hellraiser reaching for heaven, Richard Harris, that I didn't ask in my book. Some even made me ask further questions about myself as Richard's authorised biographer. Authorised by Harris, that is. And a lifelong fan of the man. All of this made me decide in the hope that those conversations might fire similar responses in you to make a few podcasts based on the interviews I did. I made the first podcast on January the 8th, two days before my book finally became available in America and elsewhere. And I'm delighted to say that since then, the first-run hardback edition has nearly sold out, though it is still available in select bookstores and on Amazon, the book depository, etc. However, I've yet to decide if I'll travel, for example, to LA to do a signing at that great independent bookstore, Book Soup. So maybe these conversations about Richard Harris raising hell and reaching for heaven, that's three plugs, will help me decide if it's a book you want to read or run like hell to avoid. Okay, the entry on this podcast was one I did with Irish broadcaster Marty Whelan, who, by the way, is not only a Harris fan, he adores the work of composer Jimmy Webb. At the end of the interview, and this was cut from the show, I asked if the book changed his view of Webb, and Marty said, no, it hadn't. But the book, but the book does tell the story of Richard Harris and Jimmy Webb in a way that I promise you, you have never heard it before. Now, here's Marty. I got a book recently, and I thought Mary Impress sent me the copy of Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven from Joe Jackson. And um, because I'm a big fan of Richard Harris, I thought to myself, I'm definitely going to read this because I've I, I loved his acting, but I, I, I also love the fact um, that on vinyl at home, I have A Tramp Shining and I have... Uh, I have two versions of A Tramp Shining. One I think I pilfered from the library here in RTE and the other one I actually purchased. So I'll tell you. Um, and I even think there might be a third one hanging around somewhere. Uh, but Joe Jackson has written the most interesting of books about somebody he clearly liked. But more than that, uh, it, it, was, it was like an analysis of somebody's life. It's astonishing. Uh, Joe, good morning and welcome. 
And now, Marty, I know when I went looking for a tram shine <laughs> for my Under the Influence program, I could not find it. I think I've had it. I since should have been rerouted to your home. You should have. I think I have it since 1979. I have to check it. I think there's a sticker on it. I come clean on this okay, one. I come clean. Right, it's okay. like the fellow sending the book back to the library 40 years later. How much yeah. do I owe you? I'm paying the money you owe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, uh, good morning and welcome. Hiya. This Let's is uh, this is an amazing read. This book is an astonishing. Astonishing read. Thank um, you for reading. Uh, you. Cover to cover, and I'll tell you, uh, I, at, the, at the end of it, um, and I won't because we need to go back. Um, I wanted to be beside you in the coal hole bar in in London. <laughs> the two of you sitting off. It was like your dream fulfilled. But look, your first meeting with Richard Harris. When was that? When did that happen? When did you it was, connect? Uh, it was October the tenth, nineteen eighty-seven. Right. And to be precise, eleven a.m. Berkeley Court, the presidential suite. <laughs> I was led in by Jerry Lumberg, the great, uh, the great Jerry Lumberg, who is thankfully still with us. Um, so, was that? To do an interview, to, mm. to, to, to plug something, I presume, yeah. or whatever. whatever. No, uh, I, um, Hot Press had been trying to get an interview with him for years, and he, he had never responded. And I, uh, the, the night I decided to become an interviewer was after I interviewed Leonard Cohen. Yeah. And for whatever reason, and it wasn't LSD, he didn't give me drugs and we didn't drink wine. Yeah. I felt transcendent after the conversation. Yeah. I remember walking down Jury's Hotel and thinking, good God, my feet are not touching the carpet. And I thought, that's out of a one-hour conversation with one of my heroes. Yeah. So on that night, you know, rashly or otherwise, I decided, ah, I'm going to become an interviewer to track down more of my heroes to talk with. It's a very, very simplistic attitude. <laughs> but that was it. But brilliant. Yeah. And Harris was the first on the list. Right. So on that, that week... I, uh, I wrote out 120 questions that I wanted to ask Richard Harris. And then the eve of the day I interviewed him, I went over the questions again. But, but at the end, I said, you know, this is a version of an interview I could have done in 85, but I was crapped then because I was only starting. Yes, and yeah. he asked tellingly for a list of the questions, whereas at the start of the interview, he'd been slapping them in my hand and berating me and mocking me and attacking my tendency to ask why, which, as you, as a fan of MacArthur Park, will know, I quite rightly said, you're making a lie of your song, MacArthur Park, where you say that at the end of it all, you'll be wondering why. Yeah. And he hated me for that. Yeah. <laughs> but we got in tune. Yeah. So, so at first we were we were we were fighting. We're, it was a verbal duel for twenty two minutes exactly. Then he erupted, and it became bullying, and he was abusive, verbally abusive. And I think he wanted me to smack him so he could smack me back. And then after about an hour, something happened that got us in tune. But at first, it was really tense, and I caused it. But I am the I, I am the reason it was tense. You think? I know. Yeah. Hands up. And it, but he had a temper. Yep. There, there was always the potential flare-up in any situation. Yeah. So you were, you'd always be kind of, well, most people would be on tenterhooks and they wouldn't, they'd be afraid to rile them. But you, you, you kind of, you, you push, like there's tapes, yeah, there's tapes to prove you push buttons. I did. Yeah. I, I went in intending to push his button. And my immediate, my first thing was, as he started admiring my, and you'll, you'll appreciate it, my pro Walkman cassette recorder. Yes. I spent 400 quid on a cassette recorder to get high quality tapes. And I'm glad I did, because the tapes are used in the current movie, The Ghost of Richard Harris. Yes. And he's saying, that's a wonderful machine. I must get one of those. I love gadgets. Will you write that down for me? Lovely. Yes. Friendly. So you have a thing going on, yeah. Yeah. And, but this was two minutes into the room. And I then said, Mr. Harris, you said recently the truth can be dull, but I would prefer today if we went 
if we tried to make even murky truth gleam a little rather than go for colourful lies. Now, that's true, you know. Yeah. His muesli spoon froze in midair and, <laughs> and, and we were off. Yeah. And he said, I said that? And I said, no, I said the second part. Does it sound like you? And he said, no, it sounds totally pretentious. You do, not I do. But let's go oh, ahead and see what happens. You direct the little movie. Yeah. And we were off. Yeah, Dueling. Dueling from the start. And then my first question was typed. And it was, you know, so would it be fair to say that in a certain interviews, such as the one with Jonathan Ross two weeks ago, you tend to uh, tell anecdotes um, as a ploy against self-revelation and speak more for effect than in truth? Now, where are you going to go from that but into a fight? There's no question about it. You know it. what I mean? Yeah, because so, cause it was the actor acting. It, it was it, no, and, the and character. The, the real truth that I now realise, because he told me later in life, he had a performance yeah. as Richard Harris, which he gave to all journalists. We've all seen it on television, to Parkinson, yes. to Ross, to all those people. And the, the performance was to keep people at bay. Yeah. Because ever since he was a child, he was writing poetry about his inner feelings, secret self, and he hid the poems under the bed. He continued that pattern for the rest of his life. His poetry is very good. The which? His poetry is the very poetry good. Is very, some of his childhood poetry is immensely moving. Yes. But it showed, and you see, that's what I knew about Richard before I went, because like you, I am a huge Jimmy Webb fan. Yes. I'm a huge Richard Harris fan. Yes. So I came in not as a movie fan, but knowing his music intimately and knowing his poetry. Right. So I knew there's a dark heart, there's a poeticism, there's a lyricism, there's tenderness to this man. I didn't see it on Jonathan Ross. So what, I wanted in the so, interview. So you wanted to be the one who would who would bring that out. Yeah. Or felt that you could be the one. Well, I hoped I could. Yeah. But, you know, and I I knew I was going to he was going to fight me, but I didn't realize then that it was because he for the first time he was being told, I don't want your performances, Richard Harris. Oh, the real you, the real you, the real you. Um, And of course, he had spent his life, hadn't he, over the years, uh, as a kind of an outsider, the Mm -hmm. sense of being an outsider. Well, this is interesting, Marty, because uh, in the last year, one of the great blessings of my life is that I've uh, got to know his brother, Noel. Yes. Who is 90 very soon, and if he's listening, I wish him a happy birthday. And and his daughter, uh, uh, Sonia, Richard's niece, and there's a lot of stories that Richard told that Noel will go, that's bull. Yeah. And one of them is what you just said. He said Richard always went around, well, for one thing, he was telling everybody that the parents didn't love each other. It was a match-made marriage and they, they were just comfortable with one, one another. And yet, in the book, it's clear that they did love each other. But I made a point of making that clear yes, in the book. Yes, you did. I think, and it's all, there's another layer to it. Uh, Noel said he found offensive the fact that Richard would always claim that they ran out of money when the flower business folded because ranks moved into Ireland and killed them. Well, they were very small well off people. But they so. remained well off. Yes. Whereas Richard's line to me, even at the start, was I remember the wealth disappearing, and I know it was disappearing because my mother was down on her knees scrubbing the floors. And Noel said, We always had maids. And Noel said to me in 2022, I still don't understand why Richard had to spread this story about us being poorer than we were. My belief is that in the late 50s, left-wing leaning Joan Littlewood directed plays, the Angry Young Man era, just like punk later, where Bob Gildoff would be claimed to be from Sally Nogan when he's from Dunleary. Richard was was aligning himself with the working class. The kitchen sink dramas. Yeah, and at one point he said to me, those of us who came from working-class backgrounds such as Albert Finney. And I stopped him and I said, but you didn't. And he hated that. Yes, because yeah. he'd perpetrated that lie 
I, you know, I'm a rat catcher from Limerick. Yeah, but your dad owned the factory, Richard. Tell them that bit. You know what I mean? So I think that was part of the... Uh, I'm working in left-wing leaning theatre and films so like I the sporting be. life. I better say I am. Yes, yes. Or else yeah. I'll, go, I'll be at... Uh, John Littlewood will tear strips off me. He disappeared on you, though. This is another thing I couldn't fathom. Like, like he, he, he kept disappearing. And I mean, I'm talking, I'm not talking about two weeks. Like, you'd meet him, and you might meet him for a year. Yeah. And But, but there'd be promises of ideas, and, you, and, and, and I want to get into the thing about the biographer, because I love that story. Because the idea, as, as time moved on, and he told you that you were going to be his biographer, his official biographer, and there was, you know, other people out there, as we know, and other books have been written since and whatever. But at that time, you... You, but as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, that's great now, it's going to happen now in a week. And then there's nothing. Like, he just, he really had an ability to disappear, didn't he, from here? But, he, yeah. Because you had numbers, you could contact each other. Oh, yeah, no, but, but I, look, I knew that. And I also knew, one thing I learned from him as a professional journalist and as a writer and as a broadcaster even, you commit yourself 100% to the project at hand. If that means freezing out people which can always be a bad decision, or freezing out other projects, so be it. So the moment he, I got the book deal in 89, fast forward four months and he got the field. So I knew straight away, and I say it to him in the book, I did not contact you while you were filming because I knew you'd be 100% focused on that. Yeah. And he said, and I knew you'd understand. So if he did disappear and he was doing a ream of films, one after the other around the world, I'd go, so what? I'll just concentrate on my work. What I found also interesting was that, that when, I, when I, because as you say, I'm, I'm a fan of, of Jimmy Webb's as well as Richard Harris, I, I was fascinated by his ability firstly to disappear, but also to keep promising. And also, the thing about friendship fascinated me. Uh-huh. That he didn't... He didn't believe he had the ability to be a good friend. No. And I found that quite sad. Uh, that, that, in other words, that, again, we're back to the charade, we're back to the act. Yeah. And you explain it very well in the book, uh, uh, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven, that idea that he, he, he would be the life and soul of a party when he'd arrive, but that he couldn't maintain that friendship. It would be gone. We move on to the next thing. Yeah. That was, that, that was another one of those sad. really telling moments. And you, you have to be on your mettle with Richard Harris. During the very first interview, he was talking about how he can appear to be friendly. Mm. Like he says, I don't socialise much, so when I come out, I'm always up, and people think that's me being friendly. Mm. And I, I cut right across, and I said, like you're doing right now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. With, like, like you're doing this with me. And he went... Well, yes, maybe. And he didn't like being caught, and he jumped on, he said, yes, and then it's on to the next person. And then he added, being sincere every time, but forgetting them every time you close the door. That was his attitude. And in the film The Ghost of Richard Harris, one of his sons listens to that quote where you have to, that, about him using people, and you have to step over the closest of people in your life to aid your art, to aid the part you're doing or, or whatever. And you could see the son going, he had that attitude to us. Right. It was a selfish attitude also of using people and moving on. Although he did talk of great fondness and love, didn't he? For his, of which? His, uh, he did speak of, with great fondness and love for his two, three boys. Ab- absolutely. And his ex-wives, his two absolutely. ex-wives. Absolutely. But I think there was, because there was a part where he said a young actor once asked him, what do you need to be a great actor? And he said, you have to be masochistic and, and, and sadistic. And he did have that sense... I will use whatever mm. I have to use. And there's a great uh, 
part in the book where he talks about how, because I get him thinking about it for the first time, about am I using the memory of the death of my sister and my father to serve the poem, i.e. to serve myself. I didn't ask them, do you want a poem to be written about you? Mm. I didn't ask my dead brother, do you want a, a memorial fund set up? He says, so am I really doing it for myself? The, the, the loss of his sister had a huge impact, didn't it? it the, the loss of both sisters. The first sister had... a, and, and he never... I was astounded that he only told me about that towards the end. Yeah. I, but you must remember, at the end, when I interviewed him last time in 2001 at Savoy Hotel, he was writing a play about his life called Echoes. So he was ruminating over things that perhaps he hadn't confronted. And he was coming up to 71. Maybe he had a sense of his mortality, which was even worse than had happened when he hit 60. Yeah. So he told me that, yeah, the death of Audrey when he was 15 had the deepest impression of him, uh, impression on him because he uh, became fearful of being buried in the family tomb. Like, and he gave just that, that image of uh, going to the grave and... Um, for any other time after that, when he went to his mother's funeral or his father's funeral, he hid behind a tree. And he never braved the family tomb for 50 years. Astonishing. And then when Jimmy, his brother, died, he finally went down and he said, and I saw all these coffins piled up, and he said, I saw the name Richard Harris, which was his grandfather, yeah, was named yeah. after. And he said, I said to someone, what wouldn't they give to come up out of here and have a pint of Guinness? So he went to a local pub and he went back on the drink that day. But he had, and this is, I've said it before, but it's, and I make a point in the book, and I don't like in the film where they still perpetrate the lie, I was drinking because I loved it and I wasn't running from anything. Any boy who was running from a fear of being buried in the earth from 15 is running from something. So if you run that parallel between his fear of death, and he admitted to me in the first interview when I said, a lot of us... Uh, see heavy indulgence in sex, drugs or alcohol as spitting in the face of death. Now, this was before I knew that about his sister. And he said, I absolutely agree. Yeah. And then he said, my behaviour patterns are set, as you identified, against my ever-constant awareness of impending doom and death. That tells us all we need to know about Richard. Yeah. So you take that into the ferocious conversations, the ferocious fights, the music, the poetry, the acting. That's where he was coming from. But that's the him he didn't want people to know. Yes, he didn't. You know. Um, as, as we know, um, the act is easier. Yeah. You think, Jimmy Webb, very, just to touch on Jimmy Webb, that, like MacArthur Park. I knew and all you'd this. get here, Marty. No, well, no, no, I no, knew you safe. would. No, you're on, safe. You're safe. You're safe. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Jimmy Webb, and that's fine. Yeah. But their relationship, um, it ended very badly. Sure. They had a tortured and troubled relationship, but who didn't have that kind of relationship with Richard Harris? Yes, yes, yes. And yes, it was a collision of egos. But what I object to, and Jimmy Webb won't like me saying this, is he's still telling the story that it's all over a, a, a Rolls Royce. I saw him in... Yeah, that keeps coming <laughs> over. Yeah, the story. <laughs> no, I saw him in Limerick when I did the one-man show, Richard Harris Revisited in Limerick, and he was on the same evening. So I went from me talking about that to, to seeing Webb in concert. Right. And he tells the story, Richard promised me a Rolls Royce if MacArthur Park got to number one, he never gave it but to me. But it was me. the actual Rolls Royce that he that was, was in. This, this is his argument. Yes. I, he says, he said, 
sent me pictures of Rolls Royces and he said, you can have this one, you can have that one. Dermot was sending him brochures. I don't want any other one. I want the one I was in riding around Ireland with you. <laughs> right. Great story. <laughs> but, 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 but when you go into that, and I know this is a part that was, that was cut out of the film. Yeah. Because Adrian Sibley, the director, played part of my tapes for Jimmy and saying, well, here's what Richard remembers. And Richard said to me, tell him you'll get it. Uh, Rolls Royce yeah. when I get my royalties. He said he didn't get any royalties. Yes. yes. Right? Now, if you trace that right back to 68, and this is what comes across in the book, the tension starts in public interviews they are giving at the time. Like, Jimmy Webb tells the NME that he's, he's, he's explosive and eruptive, but I can deal with him. That, they're the first interviews they gave to Keith Altham. So you're kind of going, wait now, the tension... And then very soon Richard is saying he wants to be a pop singer. He thinks he's a pop singer. He should just be writing songs. So they're at or, each other. And I've recorded this song because his version was crap. You kind of go, whoa. Yes. So that's, that's yeah. 68. Yeah. And then through the book, I follow all the other projects that were supposed to happen. And for Richard, the breaking point was 1970 when he asked Webb to write the music for the movie Bloomfield. And there's a long story about how he felt, and his word is, I was betrayed by Jimmy. He gave the job to Bill Whelan instead, yes. which is a great break for Bill Whelan. Yes. But Richard never forgave. And when Webb says in the movie, we didn't talk for 20 years, I think it was nearer 12, that's where that rupture came from. And the story of Bill Whelan getting it is in his current book. If don't know oh, if is it? Seen. Yeah. Does he say, all oh, right, he okay. Yeah, yeah, All yeah. right, no, okay. But, but it's, yeah, it's, 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 um, he doesn't go down the Jimmy Webb road. No. He goes down his own road. It's quite well, interesting. No, nobody has told that. And then you, you yeah. see, it goes right around to you have and you own the Raven CDs of the reissues of the A Tramp Shining and the yes. Ultimate Down Forever. But I have the vinyl. As well. You have the vinyl, of course you do. Mm. You're a true fan. Don't but, you. uh, you're a hi-fi buff too. Uh, so, <laughs> but Richard claimed in the end that he didn't get royalties from reissues of the CDs because he was still alive when that was happening. Right. So that battle continued to his death. But he blamed Jimmy Webb for that. What well, he, yeah, he, he he claimed. Well, he, well, Richard also claimed that he appointed a lawyer himself in oh. California to track down the rights. Now, this is a story that's highly that can be contested. Richard said to me at one point, "I own the recording of MacArthur Park." Now that's and he, I said, "Why do you say that?" And he said, "Because they wanted to put it on an anthology, a compilation, and they wrote me a letter saying, "Will I grant my permission?" So how he could own it, but there's a murky area there that has never been clarified. And if you want the truth about the rupture between, and I agree with you, I say it in the book, a relationship that started off on such a high, creating such magnificent music, particularly the art went on forever, mm. and, and a, tram, a Tramp Shining, the Which album is itself. Incredible piece They of made those music, and to think that by the end of the 60s, specifically 1970, it had imploded, yeah. is to me one of the saddest breakups in musical partnerships in history. It's a shame. You know, they were, they were magnificent together. Now, I know you love uh, Glenn Campbell's interpretation I of do. Jimmy's songs. I do. But I, you know, when it comes to songs on the Tramp Shining Gala, the really dramatic things, I don't think Campbell could do those. I think the actor Richard could get right into the soul of them. But, but I think, didn't we, the very finest version is Richard Harris. It is, yeah. He also told me a funny story about this, and I remember this. My dad was a Frank Sinatra fan, yes. and I was made to watch Frank Sinatra on television, whether I liked it or not. Again, 1970, Sinatra from BBC, the Royal Festival Hall. Signed. Now, my dad loved Harris too, so my dad had a tramp shining. 
That was one of the few times I had the single, he had the album. So we loved Harris. Yeah. And we watched uh, Sinatra in the Royal Festival Hall and he introduced, because he just recorded, didn't we? The first thing we noticed was he dropped the word girl. Didn't we? Girl. girl yeah. No girl. I Sinatra doesn't sing to girls. But like he, at the end of it, he raised his hand and he said, that ought to, that ought to kill him. Richard Harris. Right? It was a dig. Right. And I said to Richard years later, I said, did he say, and he said, Harris, he, Harris said, Sinatra was always mocking me. He said, mocking my voice, mocking my singing. And it goes back to the fact, and yet, well, you know from the book, that Jimmy Webb and Richard Harris offered the, the, uh, a tramp shining to Warner Brothers, which was part owned by Sinatra. Reprise records. And, uh, yeah, yeah, reprise. And, yeah. and they, they turned it down. So yeah. when it became a hit album, he tells me that Frank Sinatra went into the office and he said, I want you playing a tramp shining every day to embarrass the person when it was number two, to yeah. embarrass the person who wouldn't go with it. But that story. kind of... The, 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 Richard loved Frank Sinatra. And as you know from the book, Sinatra c came through for Richard on many occasions. Well, the story from the plane story. Absolutely. Nobody knew that. It's yeah. an astonishing yeah. story. Well, you better tell us. No, it's you, your story. It's your book. Yeah. Um, that, 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 that Harry, will you tell it? Come on. Yeah, no, he said that um, uh, when Richard was making Camelot, uh, and there is a chapter in the book where I talk about the disintegration of the marriage between himself and Elizabeth. Yes. Because he was drinking very heavily. And I think part of the reason he was drinking, though, he would deny it. If I was sitting here today, he'd say, Joe, that's nonsense. Was because he knew he'd... You made a reference there to him going for the money and Major mm -hmm. did. I think as the years went on, he got pro progressively more angry at himself for having done that. So he was drinking to excess. He was not being a good husband in any sense. And Elizabeth came back to London. The next thing you heard, she wants a divorce. Sinatra phoned him and he said, is it true? And Harris said, I'm afraid it is. And he says, do you want your marriage to work out? And he said, I do. And he said, well, then fly home and, and sort it out. And Harris said, I can't. I'm, I'm in this bloody movie, Camelot. And, uh, you know, he said that Sinatra said, leave that to your Uncle Frank, which is what he called him. <laughs> and Mrs. Sinatra made a call. Yeah. And then somebody was made an offer that they couldn't refuse. <laughs> Because Sinatra phoned him back and said, you've 10 days off, my jet will take you to my New jet, Jersey, can't fly it to home, it'll be waiting for you to come back. I but then Richard story. went and had an affair with Mia Farrow. Yes, he did. But she was not separated from Frank. Which strikes me as, at the very least, bad-mannered. Well, that's the very... <laughs> a very sociable <laughs> phrase to put on that. Do you know? I couldn't no, believe No, that. but what's really serious about that, as you know from the book, mm. Frank Sinatra, when he was in the apartment and Mia took the call from Frank, Richard said, don't tell him I'm here. Because he knew, I knew, that uh, Frank had sent out some friends to beat up George C. Scott because he'd slapped David Gardner. So Frank Sinatra knew. And he said to me, uh, he said to her, I'll end up in, in, in the Thames yeah. in cement shoes if you tell him. And there's a really ominous moment where Frank is chatting with Sinatra, uh, or with Harris me. is chatting, no, Harris is chatting with um, Sinatra on the phone. Yeah. And Frank says, so you're taking care of her? And uh, he says, yeah. And there was silence and Frank says, Richard, you better take care of her. And Harris knew what that meant. So, it's, you know, you're kind of going, betraying his old friend yeah, and then getting what's almost a death threat or at least will beat you to a pulp. That's right. But, or, he, but he still went for it. Yeah. It's kind of, I'm watching you. I have an idea. You're up to something. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. And it? I have friends. And I have always, <laughs> boy, do you have friends. <laughs>
it's a great book. It's oh, a great really. book. Um, uh, let me finish. I have to ask the question, okay. obviously. You, you must miss him. Did you, do you, you liked him. There was a there was this God bless thing that you did and you 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 seemed to you bought, there was no question well, about it there was a bond no you he'd say God bless or you say God bless oh, you, yeah. you seemed to you seemed to bond you did seem to bond did you like him yeah well that God bless thing is telling particularly during after the last interview when I hugged him outside the Savoy before I went and you will probably get this I, I had played the old records as part of my research the night before and I, I almost heard my father's voice or somebody's voice say this is the last interview. You'll never meet Richard again. Talk to him as if it's the last time. So when we hugged goodbye after our, you mentioned it at the start, yeah. our nine-hour drinking session in the coal hole in Oxford Street and the nine-hour interview, like we talked for 18, 16 hours or whatever, non-stop. There was never a break. When I hugged him at the door at the Savoy and he said, God bless, there was something in his eyes and something in his, that, as if both of us knew this is it. And he wasn't ill. But both of us, you know, you sometimes get that sense. You didn't think he looked great, though? Well, he looked better than he had back around 1990. No, but he didn't look great. Mm. But this was the man who had just made Gladiator. And, yes. uh, you know what I mean? Harry Potter. And Harry Potter. But uh, I, there was a sense that this was the end. I have to finish with one Thank thing. You. I have to ask you one. No, I, have to, I can't let you go. The disappearing bag. <laughs> the bag that was supposed to have tapes and notes and poems and all mm. of. Yeah. You don't want to answer that one? No, I do. Go ahead. It's like the mystery. Yeah, okay, I understand. I have to be careful about that. Okay. Uh, because a lot of people would say, there was a moment at the end uh, where he said, we were in the pub, yes. in the cold hall. Right. And he said uh, something like, he said, we're still friends, Joe, aren't we? Right? And there was a real questioning in it. And he was worried. Because I had brought up this question. Yes. This is a I, bag that it, came oh, sorry, yeah. with lots of other bags, but it went missing. It's a bag which he claimed had a passport, uh, his visa, and 20 hours of taped memories for our book. Which he had done himself. Yeah. Yes. He, and he'd secretly done it over three years for me. Correct. And he said, I'm flying to Dublin. I'll be in on Christmas week. Joe, meet me in the Berkeley. Yeah. I, have a, I have a surprise for you. And the bag disappeared. And the bag disappeared. Okay. So then, fast forward uh, eight years, and I'm in the... And because we've had a few drinks, and this wasn't part of the interview for the Sunday sure. interview. Or, and that, that nine-hour interview was also for RTE, so I have to thank RTE for under the influence. Yes. So it had continued all day, but this question didn't relate to any of that. So I said, listen, no person came over to me when that article was published in the Sunday Independent, and he said, would you shut up about that missing bag, Joe? Yeah. There was more to it than you ever knew. Right. And Richard got, for the first and only time in my presence, he couldn't answer me, and he couldn't look at me. He started, he went back and he sipped his pint and he just finished sipping it. And he started looking around the room and I knew, oh, wow, I've hit something here. And then he's deflecting yeah, yeah, all yeah, over strong, there. Yeah. So I kind of knew there was something under all this. But, but since then, I, I have learned that it was financially lucrative for Richard to say that he lost items in the bag. And he had to go with that story. Okay. But I do believe, you know, because uh, he, he went on to, like, American television. <laughs> Someone in America, a friend of mine in America said he was on, not Johnny Carson or somebody, and he said, I've lost a bag. If you find it, send it to Joe Jackson, currently <laughs> Irish Times in Dublin. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? So, uh, we well, leave I, a question mark. I think okay. it's best to leave people with question marks. Okay, well, yeah, that's a hell of a question. Because <laughs> Can I just say, if anybody finds the bag... <laughs> 
<laughs> Send it to Marty Whelan. <laughs> Care of RTE. And he'll I'll sell it to Joe Jackson. I, I know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything. Like that. I'll have a look at it inside, though. Joe, you're a gentleman. It's been a real pleasure. Um, it's called Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. Um, I couldn't put it down, and it's like a, it's like a mystery. It's like a murder, but it's a terrific book, and it gives a whole other insight into someone, um, particularly on the basis that I was a huge fan of Richard Harris anyway, and I loved his work. Do you know what I mean? Be it Camelot or whatever, whatever. And I've always I've always had a thing about him. And thank you for talking to me today. Thank you. Take care. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. And if you want to read some of my articles, they are available on joejacksoninterviewer.com. Also, as I said earlier, the hardback edition of the book Richard Harris Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven is nearly sold out, but it's still available if you seek it out. And it will remain available as an e-book and probably be published later this year as a paperback. Thanks again.